So it is the new year. It's our first Sunday in the new year, 2019, and so I figured I, I wanted to preach a sermon that sort of relates to that, relates to, you know, the kicking off of a, of a new year, the end of one year, kicking off of a new year. And when I think of a new year, one of the things that I think of is sort of fundamental to what so many people think of and do at New Year's is the making of resolutions, your classic New Year's resolutions. Uh, and not that I'm going to be preaching on New Year's resolutions, but certainly I'm going to preach on a biblical topic that really relates to that. Um, and when we think of New Year's resolutions, this is something that's, that's common, it's widespread in our country. I looked up some statistics, I was a little bit curious, you know, is this something that most people do? Is it just sort of, yeah, we speak about it, but most people don't really actually make their New Year's resolutions. And statistically, actually, in America, uh, just about 50%, it's between 40 and 50% uh, of Americans do have some sort of New Year's resolution. And what this really speaks to is the fact that Deep down, people, when they look at themselves, right, at the end of, an, of one year, the start of a new, it's sort of naturally the season of taking stock, a whole year lays before you and sort of processing and thinking of that whole year and the year before. Uh, and, and there's a recognition as, as one takes stock of the fact that, hey, we're flawed. As we think of ourselves, there's an acknowledgement that, hey, I'm not really exactly the way that I would like to be. I need to see change in my life for the better. And so, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to make some sort of New Year's resolution. You know, some of those might be some grand things. Maybe it's, you know, I want to lose five pounds this year. Or uh, I'm going to go to the gym. Or I'm going to eat better. Or whatever it might be. But this is sort of what many people do. There's all sorts of New Year's resolutions. But fundamentally, there's a realization of the fact that I'm flawed. I need change for the better in my life. And that is something that even people on the outside, not just within the church, recognize, right? That doesn't mean that they want to talk all about sin and brokenness and all of that. But there is an undercurrent of people recognizing, I'm flawed, I'm broken, I need change in my life. And certainly for us in the church, right, we affirm that reality as we think of ourselves, even, even in Christ, even though we've been made into a totally new creation. Of course, before Christ, we're broken, we're fallen, we need change in our lives, but we've been made into a new creation, we have newness of life in Christ. But even still, we're still broken, we're still fallen, we still struggle with the lingering aspects and lingering effects of sin in our lives. And we recognize that we need continued change or transformation in our lives. We need to see continued sanctification and spiritual growth, growth and obedience. We need to see that change in our lives, in our hearts, in an ever-increasing way. Um, and so this is sort of how I'm going to tie these two themes together. But I want to speak to the reality, because as we think of uh, transformation in Christ, one of the things that we're going to talk about is that it's really not something that we can... Uh, effect on our own and bring about on our own. If we want to be transformed, if we sort of at the start of a new year, recognizing sin in our lives and say, we want to see transformation in our life, we can't just say, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to accomplish this. I'm going to tackle this on my own, in my own effort, in my own strength. That's not going to be effective. It's something that is accomplished in the transformational power of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, as we think of New Year's resolutions, we sort of see this in a sense. We see man's inability to really affect positive change in his own life just by taking a look at some of the statistics. And even for many of these New Year's resolutions, they're not really uh, things of great substance often. It's sort of dealing with superficial things. And yet, even in spite of that, uh, the degree of failure is off the charts. 
Here are some of the statistics. If you want to talk about these Americans who make their New Year's resolutions, uh, by the second week in February, 80% have already failed. They're done. They've given up. All hope. You know, whatever it was, lose some weight, go to the gym, you name it, whatever it is. Be a better parent. They've sort of said, you know, forget it. I can't do it. I've failed. Done. And then you might say, well, you know, what about the 20% who are left? Do they sort of keep on and do they do well? Do they uh, accomplish their goal? Do they achieve this New Year's resolution? Well, of of the people who make these New Year's resolutions at the start of the year, only 8% actually achieve them. And again, I'm not saying that 8% actually achieve real heart spiritual transformation in, in their lives. Again, a lot of these might be small things about health or being a little bit better of a parent or whatever it might be, giving up smoking or, you know, what, there's a long list of, of New Year's resolutions. But even for a lot of these sort of superficial things, the reality is even still only 8% can manage to actually bring about some sort of even superficial change in their lives. And what I would say is that that really speaks to, in a sense, the depths of our brokenness and our complete inability to really change who we are and bring about true transformation on the inside. Uh, and of course, that's that's something you can see just looking at the evidence here, but we certainly know it from a, a biblical standpoint that that's what Scripture speaks to, that it's the Holy Spirit who brings about change on the inside. And so as it, we sort of stand at the start of a new year, we stand at the start of, of 2019, what I want for us is, is not to say, oh, I'll make some sort of you know, New Year's resolution, not that there's anything wrong with that, but to sort of dig a little bit deeper at the end of one year, at the start of a new, to sort of look at our lives, take stock, and say, where are the areas in my life where there's still sin, where I'm living in sin? And certainly they're there. We all struggle with sin. And to resolve, not in our strength, because we can't do it in our own strength, but to, but to resolve in the power of the Holy Spirit to be rid of that sin, to see that positive change, that positive transformation take place in our lives in this year, in 2019, so that we can better honor God, better glorify Him, better serve Him in this new year and in the years to come. So that's sort of where we're going. That's ultimately going to be, in a sense, our application. But I want to take a look in, at Scripture here and say, well, what does Scripture say on the matter? And we're going to be looking at Colossians. So you can flip your Bibles there. Chapter 3. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. And I'll read this for us. I'll sort of pause as we go through and interject various points. We'll do all of our teaching as we usually do up front and then apply what we've learned. Though I've already sort of told you where we're going with application, but we'll get there after we do our teaching. But let me read this for us. Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. And Paul writes here, and he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Right, so what's going on here? I'm going to pause here for a moment and explain this. What Paul has in his mind, though he's not explicitly stating it here, what he has in his mind is this uh, reality of our union with Christ. When we come to faith in Christ, when we give our lives to him, we put our faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins with a repentant heart, we are united with Christ. And in a sense, we share in uh, all of our spiritual blessings, everything that we have, we have in Christ, we share in that with him. So the life that he has, but also the death he experienced on the cross, there's a participation in that, a sharing in that. So just as he died, well, we die, right? He died to sin, and so we, when we trust in him, have a participation, a sharing in that death. And so we experience a death to sin and a dying to our old self. But at the same time, just as Christ was raised to, to life, well, we share in that Right? And we're raised to newness of life with Christ as well. And so all of the spiritual blessings that we have is because we've been united with Christ and we share in that with him. 
And so in a sense, whatever he earns, we share it, so to speak. And so he has this, this idea of union with Christ in his mind. And so he says right here at the beginning of this passage, since then you've been raised with Christ, right? Christ has been raised, right? And we share in that with him. We participate in that resurrection with him because we, through faith in him, have been united with him. And so he's saying, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, right? And it says, so you've been united with Christ. The old you, he's dead, he's gone. There's a new you, you've been raised to newness of life in Christ. And so you shouldn't be setting your mind on things that are worldly the way that you used to. Don't be that person anymore. You've died to that person. He's dead, he's gone. But rather you've been raised with Christ, raised to newness of life in Christ. And so you ought to set your mind on heavenly things, new things, spiritual things, things uh, of God rather than worldly things as you used to. And he reiterates this in a sense in the next verse. Verse 2, he says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, right? Don't be the person you used to be. Don't be the old Steve. Don't be the old you. Don't be the old us, right? He's dead. He's gone. You can't live that way any longer. Instead, there's a new you. You've been raised to new life in Christ. Live in light of that and set your mind on heavenly things rather than on worldly, earthly things. He goes on, verse 3, for you died, right? He says it here explicitly, for you died, right? The old you, of course, they're still physically living, right? That's not what he's speaking of. But rather he's saying the old you, the old sinful you with your old passions and desires, uh, those sinful passions and desires, he's saying that you, he's dead, he's gone, and there's a new you, right? For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This is a verse that I would say is pretty well loved, but maybe a little bit confusing, right? Your life is now hidden with Christ in, in God. What, in a sense, does that mean? Well, hidden here is really meant in the sense of uh, hidden in a safe place. So, in a sense, you could translate it in a sense, hidden is literally translated, but you could translate it in another way in the sense of uh, your life is secure. Right? That would be a good translation of this. But there is also a sense in which hidden is appropriate because he's talking about spiritual life. He's talking about something that isn't readily visible or tangible. And so there's a sense in which hiddenness uh, is particularly appropriate to speak of this. And also, even as Paul is saying this, the, the life that we have in Christ, he has in view not just the life that we're already experiencing in Christ, but a recognition of this sort of a fullness of it that is to come on the last day. And in fact, he's going to get there. Uh, in just the next verse, but recognizing in a sense, yes, we have life in Christ already, but there's sort of a fullness of it that is still to come that's sort of hidden away, right? It's secured for us, but we're not fully living in that fullness of life that we have in Christ, and so it's sort of hidden away, tucked away, secured in Him, right? But we notice that it's hidden or secured with Christ in God. Again, thinking about this, this theme of union with Christ, in a sense, everything we have, everything about us, it, it's bound to Christ. It, it, we're united with him. We share with him in everything. And so the life that we have is, of course, with Christ. Everything we have, in a sense, can be described as with Christ. Every blessing we have, everything we share, uh, our standing, in every way, it's with Christ, being bound to him, tied to him, united with him, of course. Certainly, we see elsewhere in Scripture the language of in Christ, which means the same thing here. Uh, but here, Paul's trying to make a distinction here between with Christ, but in God, meaning God the Father. So, in a sense, in every way, our life is with Christ. It's tied up in him. We're bound to him, united with him. Everything about our life is, is alongside Christ, tied to him, with him. But it is in God the Father. And so what he's saying is 
our life, right, if we think of sort of the dynamics of, of the Trinity, right, of course, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're certainly equal in, in every way in, in regard to being, in essence, but in regard to function, there are sort of differences between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, in, in sort of a functional way, they have diff- distinct roles within the Godhead, within the Trinity, and it is this distinct role of the Father to be, in a sense, the chief authority. To be the boss, so to speak. They're equal in, in being, in essence, in essence, but it is God the Father who has, functionally speaking, that role of authority. Not that he's greater in essence, but that's just his distinct role within the Trinity. And it's the role of the Son to submit himself to the Father and do the will of the Father. And that is all done in the power of the Holy Spirit. So those are sort of the, the functional distinctives. And so in speaking of the life that we have, in a sense it can be spoken of as being chiefly in God, because he is chief in the Trinity. That said, it is, of course, in Christ, and we'll see that in the next verse. And again, as we think of the security, the hiddenness or security of our life, it is, again, chiefly in God the Father who secures, who provides this life as chief within the Trinity and, of course, secures it chiefly as the one who is chief within the Trinity. And so it's being said here, right, he's saying, so you died, right, the old you, he's dead and gone, and you now have this new life, and then this new life is with Christ, in a sense, in tandem, being united to him, you now have this life, and of course it is secured and treasured up, and and sort of, it is secure, and its very root is chiefly in God the Father. That's what's being said here. But then he goes on, verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, so again, Christ can still be spoken of as the source of our life. It's not just the Father, but certainly Father chiefly in this role of giving life, because that is his role within the Trinity to be chief in a sense. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Again, as Paul's talking about this, uh, our life being hidden in Christ, he can't help but sort of be thinking of, of what's still to come in regard to the life that we have in Christ, that sort of we're already experiencing newness of life, but again, it's going to come in all of its fullness when Christ returns, right? And again, we're, we're united with him, so just as Christ is glorified and exalted, there'll be a glorification of us along with him, and that's what he speaks of. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him, again, with him, because we're tied to him in glory. But then going on, verse 5, right? Put to death, therefore. Again, therefore, sort of thinking of what he's just spoken of, right? Again, remember, we're united with Christ, and so we share in his death and resurrection. So, well, we share in his death, the old us. He's dead. He's gone. We've died to sin, so we can't live that way any longer. But we were raised to new life in Christ. We have newness of life, so now we need to live in light of that new life. That new us that is in Christ. So he says, with all that in mind, right, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Right, so he gives here this vice list. That's a, a classic technical term for it. Uh, we see virtue lists at times, lists of all these wonderful virtues. Sometimes we see in Scripture lists of vices, vices, and that's what we see here. And so he's saying again, with all this in view, that the old you is dead and gone, and, and there's a new you. Well, then all that belongs to that old you, that old earthly nature, that old sinful nature, all that belongs to that, all of these sins that he lists, and not that this is, you know, all-encompassing and he lists every sin here, he just lists some of them, some that are chief, but of course, thinking of everything that's sort of a part of that earthly nature, he's saying, if the old you is dead, then that earthly nature that you used to have and live in, well, you can't live in that way any longer. Of course, instead, we're to live in a new way that is appropriate to the new and fitting in regard to the new us. So if there's a new us in Christ and we're found in him, then we ought to live in a Christ-like manner, following his leading, of course. 
So he goes on, because of these, these sins that he just spoke of, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, right? You recognize, you know, there was an old you before you came to know Christ, came to know Christ, right? This is who you are. This is how you lived, right? But he's saying, of course, don't do it any longer. Don't live that way any longer because that you, he's dead and gone. He says, but now, verse 8, you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. And we get another vice list. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Right? So he's saying, do not do all of these sinful things. Why? He says, well... You've taken off your old self with its practices. So the old you's dead and gone. He even says, in a sense, you've taken off the old practices as well. Obviously, Paul doesn't have in mind that you've 100% completely taken off the old self and those old practices. Otherwise, he wouldn't bother exhorting them to no longer live that way. But what Paul has in mind here is, of course, they they truly are in Christ. They've truly given their lives to the Lord. Uh, and, And there is a new them, of course. He's been speaking of this all along. And so there is some transformation, of course, that's gone on in their lives. They have to some degree sort of put off the old self and those old practices, but of course not completely so, right? There are still some of those old practices that have a way of lingering in our lives, and so Paul is calling them, of course, to be rid of that. So he's saying you've taken off your old self with its practices, in a sense, to some degree with its practices, and you've put on the new self, right? Think of this as sort of language of clothing, in a sense, just as you might take off old clothing, put on new clothing. It's sort of you've taken off the old self, disrobed that old you, he's gone, No more. And instead, you've now clothed yourself in the new you, which he says, this new you is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So what's being said here, right? There's a renewal that's taking place in knowledge. A little more literally, it's toward knowledge. So it's sort of this renewal is happening with regard to to knowledge, toward the end of having knowledge. And it's not just this sort of empty, you know, just academic knowledge. You just sort of know some facts and that's all. That's not what's in view. But especially if we look at other passages in which Paul is speaking about very similar things, what he's clearly talking about in regard to this renewal that's happening, of course, it's the Holy Spirit bringing this renewal in their hearts and their minds, right? What's taking place is, is part of this renewal is an increased knowledge about God and what God's will is and what he desires for his people. So a good way to put it, and you can see it in the world all around us, right? People are so depraved that even things that should be so obviously sinful, whether it's homosexuality or transgendered this and that, things that are just obviously wrong and sinful, yet the mind is so steeped in sin and so depraved that there's a sense of people not even recognizing it's wrong. And their mindset, it seems perfectly fine, and love is love, and so forth. And, well, why can't I identify as whoever I want to identify? Male, female, whatever. What does it matter to anyone? Right? That's sort of what he's speaking of. And he's saying, you know, in your life, you were so steeped in sin, you didn't even know right from wrong. But now the, Holy, now the Holy Spirit's working in your mind, working in your heart, and bringing about this new knowledge, this knowledge, again, not just factually speaking, but a knowledge of what is right, what is wrong, what God desires for you in your life. And again, it's not just that it's head knowledge, but sort of implicit in this is, is also, and, and then an ability to live that out, and live out faithfully in service to God, in service to, to Him, His will, in line with His will. That's what's in view, and ultimately what the result is, Right, there's a being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator, in the image of the creator of this new self. So God, Christ, right, what's in view is that you're being molded more and more into the likeness of Christ, into his image. 
That's what's being spoken of here through the transforming power, of course, as the Holy Spirit. Not that he's specifically identified here, but very clearly that's what's being spoken of. And then he goes on. He says here, wanting to talk about unity that comes about right here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So he's speaking of, right, having been united with Christ, right, and, and, and all of the body of believers being united to Christ. There's also a union between the people who are now in Christ. And he's saying all these things that once separated you, whether you were slave or free, male, female, Jew, Gentile, whatever it might be, whatever sort of thing you might have identified yourself as that um, might have divided you, caused division. He's saying, in, in a sense, those things are insignificant, and now you have been brought together and united in Christ. And of course, he, he closes that verse with the statement, but Christ is all, right? He's everything and is in all. It, so he's everything in everything. But I think part of what Paul also has in mind as he's saying this, as he speaks of in all, is also the fact, right, speaking of this unity in the body, that Christ dwells within all of us and in a sense unites us all, whether we're Jew, whether we're Gentile, whether we're slave or free. And he goes on, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, right here speaking of, of the new us that we ought to be clothing ourselves in, right? Clothe yourselves, now that the old you, he's dead, he's gone, right? And there's a new you, now clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Right? Love, is, in a sense, sums up all of those other uh, virtues that he lists. Uh, sort of sums them up as sort of the undercurrent underlying all of those, to be sure. And it's, it's the thing that the virtue sort of binds it all together, as he says, in perfect unity. Brings it all together. And so chiefly put on love. Put on all those specific things. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. But fundamentally, right, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And this is not just in the sense of experiencing peace. Uh, in the fact that we have been uh, united with Christ, we now have a restored relationship with God the Father, we're at peace with God, right? There is that peace that we ought to experience and, and, and uh, certainly dwell in, let that peace of Christ rule in our hearts. But he also has sort of an overflowing of that into a peace that uh, is exhibited in the body of believers in, in regarding their interactions with one another. And this becomes clear in the rest of this verse, right? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you are called to peace. So it's not just now that there's peace between God and man, and we ought to experience that peace. We should, but also we should recognize that there should be a peace amongst the congregation, amongst God's people. Even if you're a Jew and he's a Gentile and all these differences, there's to be a peace amongst God's people. And that's what's being spoken of there. And then going on, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, a little more literally, in you. But I think it's in the sense, it can mean in or among, I think it's all of it. Let the, the, the message or word of Christ dwell in and among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And the sense here is, is, is the, the message of Christ, the word of Christ, as it dwells within you, it should affect change and bring about change. As you're sort of 
focusing your minds, your hearts on, on Christ and, and, and His message and the gospel, right? Focusing on the Lord and the things of the Lord. It should bring about transformation. The Holy Spirit works through that, brings about transformation in our lives. And then going on, verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And there's certainly a lot in this passage in Colossians chapter 3 here, verses 1 through 17. A lot of meat in here. But if you sort of want to sum it up and sort of the theme that runs throughout, it is this reality and this teaching on the part of Paul that, right, the old us in Christ, right, we've trusted in Christ, we're now found in him, we've been united with him. And as a result, the old us is dead and gone. Paul certainly wants to emphasize that. The old you is no more. You're a new creation in Christ. There's a new you. For me, the old Steve, he's not around anymore. Ever since I gave my life to the Lord, he's dead, he's gone, and there's a new me. I'm still Steve, but he's new. He's not the same person that he was. I'm not the same person that I was before. And so Paul's saying that old you is dead and gone, and therefore you can't live that way that you used to live when the old you was hanging around. Right? And it's all too easy for us, even as followers of Christ, to sort of still want to linger in the old self, to sort of dabble still in some of those old sins that maybe back when the old you was hanging around, you like to enjoy, you like to do those things. And it's so easy to sort of go back to that old self and still uh, live in those sins. And what Paul's saying is you can't do that. The old you's gone, and everything about that old you needs to be gone. Right? You, there's a new you, there's a new Steve, a new you. Right, ever since we came to faith in Christ, and we need to live in light of that. We need to live a new life, a holy life, right, and be molded in an ever increasing way, as Paul talks about, into the image of Christ. Right, that is God's desire, it's His design, it's His plan for us, for us to grow in sanctification, and, and ultimately, right, on the day that we go to be with the Lord is when this will be completed, but to be molded into the likeness of Christ. And in this life, it's an ever-increasing process, and of course, it will be completed when we go to be with the Lord. But this is, this is God's intent, this is His desire for us to grow spiritually, to be transformed in an ever-increasing way. And I think it's so easy to either go back to the old self, or even if you want to Put it a different way, maybe just to remain stagnant, just sort of stay where we are, just sort of coast through life. I'm okay. I'm doing fine. I'm not a terrible person. I'm an okay Christian. I do all right, you know. But rather, especially as it's not that the only time to do this is at the start of a new year. You should be doing this all the time. But there's sort of a natural sense in which one year ends and a new one starts. And you sort of look to the future. You look to the year as a whole. whole. It's sort of a natural time of taking stock. What I want for us is to really take stock of our lives uh, and really say, where in my life? And come before the Lord and ask him to open up our eyes to this and say, Lord, open up my eyes to where in my life I need change. I need transformation. Where in my life am I still living like the old me, still living in that sin? And there are plenty of areas. We're not perfect. We still live in sin. And, And ask the Lord, say, open up my eyes to those areas where I'm still living like the old me. Where I'm still living in that sin, unacceptably so. Reveal that to me, and God will do that. He'll open up our eyes to the sin in our lives if we ask him to do so. And when he does that, when we're confronted with the sin in our lives, just to come before the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, change me. I I can't bring this change about on my own. Otherwise, I'll wind up like those 92% of people who make their New Year's resolutions, and they fail, and they fail miserably so. I can't do this on my own, Lord. Holy Spirit, just bring about the change within me that I need to be rid of this sin, to be transformed, to be made more and more into your likeness, Lord Jesus. 
so that I can better honor you, not just for our own glory, not so that I can just say, look, I'm such a great Christian, I'm getting rid of sin in my life, and isn't that wonderful, but ultimately for God, for His glory, that we might better honor Him, better serve Him in, in, in this year, in 2019, but not just this year, but think of the years to come, 2020, 2021, and on and on for the rest of our lives, that we might better honor Him, that we might better glorify Him, that we might better serve Him. And that's really what I want for us. I'm not saying go and make New Year's resolutions in sort of a superficial sense. That's okay if you make some New Year's resolution. There's nothing wrong, wrong with that. But to really take stock, to truly do it, come before the Lord, have Him open up your eyes to sin, and really devote yourself in the power of the Holy Spirit to seeking that transformation, that change for the better that you really need in your life, and we all need it, to be able to better serve and honor and glorify God. And if we really say, we're going to do this, thinking of this year of 2019 that lays before us and each of us says if we say god i'm going to do this bring about that change that i need in my life open up my eyes to it holy spirit work and work powerfully so bring about that change that i can better honor you glorify you serve you serve your church serve your kingdom if we do that god will work mightily in our lives as individuals but as he works in all of our lives as individuals it'll have a collective impact here in new hope chapel at new hope chapel as we live in a greater and greater more obedient way unto the lord and he will use that in wondrous ways so let's hear the challenge let's live it out faithfully to the glory of god amen let's pray Lord God, we need change in our lives for the better. Certainly something that the world at large notices in their own lives. That's why every year almost half of the country makes these resolutions to change and be better. But they try to do it on their own and they fail. We as followers of yours readily acknowledge the change we need. We're not perfect. We know that. We still struggle with sin, and we need that change. We need that transformation within us. We pray that as this new year lays before us, that we would seek after you, that we would come before you asking you to show us the sin in our lives. So often we're oblivious to it. Sometimes we know that it's there and we see it, but often we're just oblivious to the ways in which we disobey you and make us aware of it. Open up our eyes. And give us a a heart to, to change, to grow. And help us to know that we can't do it on our own, but to come before you, Holy Spirit, and ask you for the change. Ask you to bring about that transformation in our hearts, deeply within us. That we might live in a new way. That we might live in light of the new us. That we might live in a greater and more obedient way and better honor you and serve you and glorify you in our lives. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.